Well, we ended up with a good crowd today in spite of, look at all the, we were going to separate the men from the boys. There's no separation. Our Tuesday morning is all, we're all men. Well, one. <laughs> oh. Okay, we, we're going to have another um, little insight today into the, the personalities of Mary and Martha. And if you've missed this up to now, we've gotten some good insight into these two ladies. And we found um, each one to be consistent in, in their activity and in their uh, uh, approach to things, in their approach to the Master. Each one, you always find Martha working, always diligently about the business of taking care of the needs in the home. And you always find Mary uh, at the feet of Jesus, study, you know, the one who is just in a state of worship almost all the time. It's not going to be any different today. And I want you to pay close attention to uh, this account. And, I, and another thing I want you to remember is that John, all the way through John, if you get confused about the chronology of the way things are laid out in John, don't. He never had any idea in the world or any desire to put it, things in chronological order. And sometimes that confuses people because they come and they think there must be some contradiction here. This is not like the synoptic gospels. There is no contribution, uh, uh, contradiction. All John wanted to do in the world was just spell out things in such a way that you could believe. And I could believe. And he, he didn't even pay any attention whatsoever to putting them in any kind of order. If it fit together, like we're going to have one portion here where it just fits together in a beautiful kind of way, it teaches a, a spiritual lesson, then that's all he wanted to come out of his gospel account. He didn't even elaborate on details. If, if the other gospel writers had elaborated on some details, he just left those out. See? It was not important to him to add every single minute detail. It was only important for him to give us a spiritual message, and that spiritual message would cause us to believe, uh, either initially or to have a deeper belief in the Savior. All right, so with those things in mind, keep that in mind. Don't ever be confused if the chron uh, chronological order is <coughs> seemingly contradicting the other Gospels. All right, six days before the Passover festival, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, one of the contradictions you might seem to find here is it seems that the other Gospel writers are saying that this account, this supper account uh, that Jesus had where you know, Mary anointed his feet or his head or both, both is what it ended up being. But what seems to happen in the other ones is that this, this happened on Tuesday night of, of the last week of his life, where John says six days, six days before the Passover festival, Jesus came to Bethany. He didn't say the supper took uh, place six days before. He just say, says he got to Bethany six days before. So I don't find any contradiction at all there. I simply see that he's making a point of saying he got to Bethany. Then he could have waited four days before the supper event took place. All right, so he says, there a supper was given in Bethany, a supper was given in his honor, at which Martha served, and Lazarus sat among its, his guests with Jesus. Uh, in another account, you'll find in Mark's account, that this was in the home, he says it's in the home of Simon the leper. And so it's important to understand that probably most everybody agrees that this sub there were not two supper events. But, but that this did probably take place in the, in the home of Simon the leper. I even read one place where it said that possibly Martha was married to him. And no mention is ever made of this. But that he might have been her husband because it keeps talking of her home, Martha's home. And you don't have to, you can take that with a grain of salt. It doesn't really matter. It could have been in a totally different home. But we find here Martha serving in somebody else's home. See? 
if it's Simon the leper's home, Martha was that person who would go into somebody else's home and take over the kitchen. <laughs> she just she didn't care where she was. That sounds so much like my mother was. I have never seen anything like my mother. She ruled her kitchen. When she came to my kitchen, it became her kitchen. I mean, and it didn't matter whether I had everything planned or not. She redid my menus. She she redid my cabinet structure. She she redid the whole thing every time she came. And I could have just saved myself the time and energy of going to any trouble whatsoever because when Mother came, she became the woman of that kitchen wherever she was. She'd even make you go out and buy groceries all over again. <laughs> if it didn't suit with what she thought we ought to have, we just have to go do the whole thing from grocery shopping on down. So maybe Martha was like this. Maybe Martha was the one who would go into somebody else's kitchen you know, and take over the serving jobs there. Uh, it says, Lazarus sat among the guests with Jesus, which might indicate, be an indication for us, a little insight there, to the fact that this was somebody else's home, because if, if it had been their home, probably there wouldn't have been any need to mention that Lazarus was at the table. Remember, he'd been raised from the dead. You know he was there. If it had been their home, there would have been no need to say Lazarus was at the table. He would have certainly been at the table. It was his home. So this gives a little bit of, of leaning toward the fact that it was Simon the leper's home. And remember that when it says Simon the leper, he was not a leper at that time. Or he wouldn't have been in, in that home, in that village of Bethany. He would have been in a leper colony. Because you were an outcast if you were a leper. So we can almost glean from this. We, it's not too far-fetched to believe that Jesus had healed him. It still referred to Matthew, the tax collector, even after he was an apostle, after he was a disciple. It still said Matthew, the tax collector. So they would usually give you an understanding or, or attach something along to the name that would make you know what they were prior to Christ. And so Simon the leper would mean probably that Jesus had healed this man of leprosy. So he had such love. I, I can't even envision this home after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Can you imagine the joy there? Not only with Lazarus, knowing that he had been delivered from a thing like this and been a part of a miracle, the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. Can you imagine the joy in the hearts of Mary and Martha? They were so grieved over the fact their brother was not with them anymore. Now they had him. You know, they had him again. The joy there. Now the joy at Simon the leper. If you had had leprosy and an outcast and Jesus had come into your life and healed you and you were clean and even the host even the host of a dinner party for him. You can imagine the joy in his heart. So this supper occasion here must have been one of the most joyful occasions that ever happened. All these people gathered together with nothing but adoration and praise for Jesus at a time where he was getting nothing but disdain and uh, distasteful experiences from the Pharisees and the Sadducees around him. All right, so keep all that in mind. Now, it says, Martha served, and Lazarus sat among the, the guests, and Mary uh, brought a pound of very costly perfume, pure oil of nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with their hair till the house was filled with the fragrance. Here are three different people in this family group and three different services three different parts of the Christian life, if you will, that are spelled out so clearly. Service, service comes first. It mentions that first. Service comes first. The second thing is mentioned is Lazarus at the table with him, communing with him, fellowshipping with him. There's service and there's fellowship. And then the, the act of Mary is an act of worship. There's service, there's fellowship, there's worship. And it usually comes in that order. Everything we've studied, everything we've studied since we started this Bible study, no matter where we found it, said that that's the order of things in the Christian life. There can serve. 
and it's so important. And I want us to stop right there just for a minute and talk about service. We're at a time where you're hearing more than ever before. Some people are just overworked, to be sure. But you hear people all the time talking about taking their sabbaticals, taking their leave of absence, and not doing anything this year for the Lord. All the way from beginning to end, it says that the first thing before you can go into the area of communion and fellowship with the Lord, before you can go into true worship of the Lord, there must be service. Service, service for his sake, service for his glory, service out of a, a heart so filled with love and gratitude it pours over and wants to do something for him. Wants to do something for him. If you love Jesus, if you really love Jesus, you'll want to show that love and service. It's as simple as that. It makes such sense. And if you know in your own life this, you know that this is true in your own experience. You cannot do enough to show him and to show others how much you love him. Now, that puts a different connotation. There won't be the person who's going around fretting and fuming. And look at Martha's service. Do you remember in the account we had before when we lifted it out of, of Luke's gospel, and do you remember that, that she was serving all right, but Mary was in there worshiping at his feet, listening to everything he said? And do you remember what Martha's attitude was? She was fretting and fussing and fuming. And she came in to Jesus, and she said, Make her come in here and help me. She was so upset with everybody. She was upset with Jesus because he didn't make Martha see that she needed to be in the kitchen with her serving and, and cooking and cleaning and everything. And, and she was upset with Mary because Mary's priorities were obviously in her eyes wrong. Mary's priorities were, while Jesus is here, let me listen to him. Let me take in all I can take in from him. And she was aggravated and irritated with Mary. All right, so now there's a totally different thing here. Those, there were four people at that supper occasion. Four people, all we know of. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus. And she was fussing and fuming and fretting and voicing it. She was serving. She was doing what she wanted to do, but she was fussing all the time. All right, now, in between that occasion and this occasion, she's had this crisis in her life. There's been a very dark period in her life. And she's come to Jesus, and she stood up to him face to face, and she said, why? And she's gone on at length. She's questioned. She's asked him for help. And he's come to the rescue all, just all too sufficiently. He's done a miracle beyond anything she ever dreamed of. And you can just imagine what's happened in her life since then. And I think all you need to do is look at the two occasions. Four people there, fussing, fretting, fuming, carrying on something fiercely. That All this happened in the valley in between, and she must have learned from that some things that she needed to know that would cause her to have peace and rest and joy in the midst of her service. And so we come over here, and she has at least 17 people for dinner this night. Now, that blows my whole mind because you know, I've been fixing for three so long that if I ever get six, I begin to panic over how do you fix for six people? Well, we know there were Jesus and the apostles, so that was 13 at least. Judas was there at this time. That was 13. And then you, if it was the home of Simon the leper, that's 14. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, 17. So you know there were at least 17 people, and sometimes they would reach out when they had any occasion like this with an honored guest. They would reach out and include other people in that village who were people of great importance. So it could have been more than 17. We know at least 17. And you don't hear a word of fretting, fuming, complaining. You don't see her come into the living room and say, Jesus, make, we got 17 people here. Make Mary come in here and help me. You don't hear anything like that this time. And that blew my whole composure when I saw the difference in that woman's attitude 
after she had really been with Jesus in such a personal way. She had declared him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, signed her for him after what he had done in restoring to their home this brother she loved so much and giving that home such a, a, a beautiful gift. She had so much love that it overflowed in service, and she didn't care one whit about what anybody else was doing. She didn't have a magnifying glass on everybody else's things, whether they were doing it or whether they weren't doing it. She just wanted to do what she could do for Jesus and for others. And I think that's the secret of the whole thing. That's it. It was like somewhere I read um, that there were men, and, and I want us to look at different areas of service, because I think sometimes we think that service has got to be just an area of preaching or teaching or, or you know, the things that the nominating committee comes to you and assigns you the job and the duty and the responsibility and the church votes on it, those are not the only areas of service. I'm firmly convicted and convinced in my own heart that every single child of God should be serving in some way. In some way. It's not for me to say which way it should be. It's for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you in your own heart what it can be. And I think even the bedridden child of God can serve because there's a tremendous service in intercessory prayer. So see, I think even that child of God should be concentrating on what he can do in service for the Lord. If it's just praying, you know, praying for other people, that's a tremendous service. Uh, there was this one account that I read about where this man longed to be a preacher. He really wanted to be a preacher. I mean, he had not one single gift for preaching. Not the slightest thing said he should preach. So he helped establish a mission hall in a very needy area of a large city. And without anybody knowing it, after he had helped establish this place and get it started and everything, without anybody ever knowing what he was doing on Saturday afternoon, when nobody was there, he would go down to that little mission hall, and he would roll up his sleeves and his pants legs, and he'd get his cleaning stuff together and his rags and everything, and he'd get in and he would scrub that place from top to bottom. I mean, he scrubbed the chairs. He scrubbed, and you know how thoughtless we are. You know how we are. If we don't see what somebody does, we never notice it. We, we just take for granted a clean building, you know, clean chairs. We take all those things for granted, never realizing that somebody's performing a service in that area and just thanking them for, for it every now and then. Well, one day what happened in this man's case was when these two young men came in to get some songbooks by accident one Saturday afternoon, and they found him there cleaning. And they said, he was an older man, and they said, no, you can't do, you know, look, you shouldn't be doing that. You're, you're not able to do that. We'll clean the building. And they already had their place of service, see. And this man said, don't you dare, don't you dare tell me that I can't serve in this way for the glory of God. Sounds very much like what the preacher was telling us about the man who tithed. Very much the same sort of story. But this is what he said. I've found something I can do. I've found a place of service. And, and if I recall right, and Vita, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me like when Laddie, the pulpit committee, went to, to Ohio, and they went through the, the church there, they said it was the cleanest place they had ever been in in their whole life. They had never seen a building from one end to the other, kitchen, fellowship, hall, church, Sunday school classrooms, everything was spit-polished. And they were talking to Brother Mulkey about it, and he explained to him there was a man there, a man who felt like his service, his service to God, to the glory of God, his call almost was to that ministry, to that job. And he did it with everything in him, I mean, to the very hilt. 
and he was, must have been so satisfied. Well, these are just different things. I can think of a million different ways that you can serve. But everybody should be doing something for the glory of God and for others. Every single one of us should find some place of service. And there should never be a time in any church where the nominating committee cannot find people to serve. Now, they cannot dictate to you and give you a job that you know you have no qualifications whatsoever. And you know in your own, that in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own soul, that's not where you ought to be. I'm not saying just take anything. We pray. Really pray and really ask the Lord to reveal to you what he wants you to do. And then go after it with everything in you and do it with all your might. If you take a Sunday school class, take that Sunday school class as unto God. I mean, give it every bit of the study it requires, every bit of the ministry it requires, every bit of the love it requires. I mean, give it everything. We should never have a Sunday school classroom with a group of people. I'm not talking about nitpicky people. There are nitpicky people all over the place. But there should never be a classroom where there's an unprepared teacher or a teacher who exhibits no love for her class members. That should never happen. It should never be the case. There should always be somebody there who feels like that's where the Lord wants him above every other place in the whole ministry of his church. And then that person will give it everything they've got in the strength of the, of the Lord. And it'll work. It'll work. I knew a man one time who served coffee. I, I couldn't believe that man. He, he put his little apron around him on Wednesday night in Cottage Hill and Mobile. And he'd put that little apron around and he'd get his coffee thing and he'd go around and everybody he'd serve coffee to he would just talk to them and smile and pat them on the back and ask them about their family and everything. What a service. Do you know that you looked forward to Wednesday night? You looked forward to going because you knew Hans was going to come to you. Let me serve you. Let me do something. Well, I asked him one day, gosh, you have such joy in serving coffee. And he said, but isn't that, isn't that special? That's what I can do best. I can encourage people. I can lift them up. I can serve them. I think that's wonderful. And too long, we have decided, every one of not all of us, but most of us have decided that we only want the places of importance. See, we only want the ones with the spotlight on it. And if you're going to give me a menial task somewhere, nobody wants any menial task anymore. And I say that, you know, I know that there are exceptions. But this is a general rule. Everybody wants the spotlight on them. Nobody wants to be the one cleaning the floors or the one uh, serving the coffee or the one doing some, some ministry that's just essential to the work of the Lord. And we need to carefully consider whether or not we've been called to be up in front of the spotlight with the spotlight on us or whether most of us have been called to some place of service where nobody will ever call our name out. But who are we doing it for? Who are we doing it for? Are we doing it for praise? Are we doing it for the Lord? And he's the one who's going to hand out the bouquets in the end. And that's so important. And it's got a burden about that. And I guess you can see it. It's just a real burden that every child of God have the privilege of service. And know that that's necessary because you won't go any further. If you're stopping there and fretting and fuming and saying, if I have to do this or if I have to do that, I just won't do it. And another terrible thing is the person who says, I'm not going to do anything until I hear the absolute voice of God speaking. This is it. You may never do anything. I mean, if, if, you're, if your attitude isn't any better than that, you may never hear his voice. And you're going to sit and fret and fume and be miserable all year long, all this year. 
if that's your attitude. You're asking for trouble. The day you say, I'm not going to do this menial thing. I'm not going to do that. I'm always asked to do something that's not important. Who's it important to? Well, service comes first. Then, then fellowship. Fellowship. After you served out of a heart of love. I mean, a heart that's just so grateful for what he's done for you. That's when you're on grounds to commune with God. That's when you're on grounds to really fellowship with him. He, he is so thrilled over somebody who does unto him a service. He's so pleased. It just opens that communication up so that you just talk. You sit and you talk. There's conversation back and forth. Conversation. Nobody dominates, hopefully, the whole conversation of any dinner party. I know some of us try. But nobody should dominate the whole conversation. There should be an exchange of conversation or there is no conversation. The very word conversation means that two people talk, at least two people, and one says something the other answers. Well, this is the way prayer and this is the way communion with the Father should be. If it's going to be communion at all, there's a time when we talk to him, there's a time when we listen. We listen to him. There's a time when we hear him, hear something from him. So that's the second thing that's brought out here. And the third thing is worship. And there will be no true worship no true worship until your heart's right in the area of service and the communication is open between you and God and that's where worship comes in. You see? It can all get clogged up down here with our bad attitudes about service. And you wonder why you don't have a worship experience. You wonder why you don't have any feedback from God. Go back to where it begins and find out what your attitude is about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I even thought that it, what a wonderful ministry if it was if you were in the bed. If you said to your Sunday school teacher, listen, if there are any calls that need to be made to, to members who are sick or in need, wouldn't that be a tremendous service just to be able to pick up the telephone and, and provide that help for your teacher? Every one of us ought to be doing something. All right, so now let's look at Mary. Then Mary brought a pound of very costly perfume. And I'm glad he put that in. It, I'm told that this is, was worth about a year's wages. About a year's wages. It sounds like Estee Lauder's new fragrance that <laughs> you can't afford. <laughs> you know? Well, anyway, this, this would cost so much that you'd have to work a year. The average person would have to work a year for it. And she went and took that whole thing that she probably didn't even use herself, was saving for some special occasion. And this was such a special occasion because Jesus was there and Jesus had done so much for them. She took the most precious thing that she had and poured it all out on Jesus. She took all that she had and gave it to Jesus. Now, you can't miss that. What she did when she poured this out on it, it was a pure oil of nard. And she anointed the feet. And the other gospel writers said she anointed the head. When you anointed the head, it was an honor, a place of honor given to him. To anoint the head was an honor bestowed upon him. To anoint the feet was humility. Utter humility to bend over and anoint the feet. Now, for her to, to anoint the feet and then let her hair down, because Jewish women wore their hair up, and only uh, in a loose uh, woman's case would you let your hair down. So when she let her hair down, some things I want to bring out uh, that you can get from this, this one sentence. Anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped them with her hair till the, the house was filled with the fragrance. And Barclay broke it down like this. He said, this is, he calls it love's extravagance. Love's extravagance. And he said, Mary took the most precious thing she possessed and spent it all on Jesus. And we're reminded when we hear anything like this of the gift of the Magi. And you're familiar with this story of how these two people loved each other so much and they had nothing. 
They just had, they had no money. It was Christmas time. They wanted to give something to each other, and they had nothing. All she had was her long hair that she loved, and he loved too. Oh, they, they just thought this hair was the most beautiful stuff in the whole world, and she just took such good care of it, grooming it all the time and everything. But time for Christmas came, and she wanted to express her love in a tangible way to the person she loved the most. And so all she could think to do was to go out and sell her hair. And she went out and sold her hair for $20. And he had one thing. The most precious thing to him was that watch. And he wanted, always wanted this little thing to keep the watch in. But they could never afford that. And he wanted to give her something to express his love so much that he went out without her knowing about it, sold his watch. And you see, with her hair, she sold. She got the $20, bought the little thing he needed for his watch. And he went out and sold his watch, the thing he loved more than anything else in the world, and bought her these beautiful combs for hair. And that seems like such tragedy. And yet it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard of in my whole life. To think that love expresses itself in such an extravagant way in giving everything. Never expecting anything for yourself. Did you know what that's what the Bible says love is all about? It's always giving totally of yourself. How many of us even know a little bit of that kind of love? How many of us always expect in return? You know, always expect somebody to be saying what we want them to say, doing what we think they ought to do. We're so consumed with what he's not doing for us, and she's not doing for us until we forget that the whole essence of love is the consuming desire to give of yourself and everything you have, even if nothing is ever returned. That's the picture Jesus gives. Total giving of yourself, never expecting anything in return. If you never get anything in return, you would still love in such a way that you would give totally of yourself. And you know, love should be extravagant sometimes. There should be the time that you go and you get that special something that maybe, maybe you don't see how, you, you know, really at that time where you ought to spend that money on that special something for them. But when you go out and somebody, your husband, buys you the little diamond thing that hangs around your neck, that's love's extravagance. It's love. and, and do you know there are women, there are women, this is going to blow your mind, I know there's nobody in here who would do this, but there are women whose husbands will go and do something extravagant like that for them and come and give, them, give it to them out of love and the women will fuss at them and carry on we can't afford this. You should have... Well, some women will even take it back. Did you know that? There are women who will turn around and take a gift their husband gave them and take it back. I don't believe... I just can't believe it. That, that destroys my whole thinking. Listen, you may call this hypocritical. You may call it what you will. But if my husband brings me something, I don't care what it is. And I don't care whether it's exactly maybe what I would have gotten if I'd gone out and spent that money on it. He would never in one million years know that that wasn't the thing I wanted more than anything in my whole life. I ain't never gotten anything that I didn't. <laughs> if he gives me something, it becomes that most special thing in the world. See? If he goes out and goes to the trouble of selecting something and brings it to me, it becomes priceless. I don't care what it is. It, and it's not just my husband, it's anybody. I have a, a tray of rings. You wouldn't believe my tray of rings. And they're given to me by little children on up. You wouldn't believe who all gives them to And sometimes they're the strangest looking little things you've ever seen in your whole life. They would never in a million years know that that's not what I would have picked out if I'd gone out. I love it. 
I love it because somebody gave it to me. Now, am I making any sense at all? I want that to come across more than anything in the world. I have a sister-in-law, and my brother picked out something for her, and, and she literally hated it so much and expressed it that he took the scissors and cut it to pieces. Now, this, this is an exaggeration. I know not many people would do that. I thought that sort of cut off your nose to spite your face. But that kind of thing should never be. You know, <laughs> but I don't blame him. That would have made me angry too. I, I might have done something. But the whole point is, if there's one person in here who has ever made your husband feel badly about something he brought him, I just hope you'll go back to this and just read it and just understand that Jesus' response to this, even though it was extravagant, and it was, Jesus' response was, she's done such a beautiful thing. It was such a <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not often Connie breaks up. <laughs> that must have been a good one to break. <laughs> okay, let's go. We won't get past seven verses at this rate. <laughs> and the exact opposites here. You have the picture of Mary, the extravagant giver, the one who pours out her whole heart and soul at Jesus, gives him everything she has. And then you have Judas. At this, Judas Iscariot, a disciple of his, the one who was to betray him. And the other gospel writers say that this particular thing right here was the thing that caused him to go out then and betray Jesus. Said, why... Uh, uh, was this perfume not sold for 30 pounds and given to the poor? And anybody who knows Judas knows he wasn't concerned with the poor, right? And John's going to explain that. John says, he's writing this years later, and John looks back on it, and he says, he adds this little note. He said this not out of any care for the poor. It's almost like sarcastic. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He used to, uh, to pilfer the, the money put in the common purse and was in his charge. He was a thief. He was, an he was the one taking the money out of the purse anyway. He didn't care about the, um, the Lord, about the poor. All right, now what the opposite here is the one who, who does not understand, the unsaved person, the person who does not love Jesus in this way, never knows or understands extravagance. See, there's always the person who says, I don't understand. There's always the person who says when you build a big building. That's extravagant. We should take that money and give to the poor. We should take that money and go over and give that to missions. Go back to this and listen to what Jesus said. You know, there's some things, and he was saying, listen to his reply before we go into this, leave her alone, said Jesus. So it's, it's an extravagant thing, but it's a lasting thing. It's something that's going to be told by people in a story that's going to be remembered and touch hearts for generations to come. It's more than just that one little momentary thing pouring out of this year's wages of perfume. It's a story that he said in another gospel account would be remembered throughout the ages as being that last beautiful, lovely thing done for Jesus on this earth. And that would be worth all the extravagance. He says, let her keep it till the day where, uh, when she prepares for my burial. For you have the poor among you always. You will not always have me. You'll not always have an opportunity to express your love like this for me. So what do we do when we build a big building? It's an expression of love for the Lord. It's a, uh, almost like putting there something that says, listen, we love him so much. We want you to be drawn to him. And you can be drawn. Many people will be drawn into a... a of sanctuary because of the way it looks on the outside. And many people will come in and have their lives transformed as a result of a tribute to the God, like uh, to God, like a beautiful building. And so I wouldn't want anybody ever to complain about something like what we're doing in the way of building something that will honor Christ. Honor Christ 
as far as this building is concerned. I think the lasting value, the tribute to Christ, the beautiful place, God's house, I believe, should be the most beautiful building in the whole town. I really think that. I know it doesn't take a building to make worship. It helps sometimes to have pretty surroundings. But I know that you can worship out on a hillside. But I think when you build a house for God, if you really have Him as your, your, your motivation for it, you know, if it's under Him that you're doing it, I think it should be the most beautiful building in the whole town. And the poor, he says, he didn't mean Jesus tended to the poor more than anybody else ever has in this world. So it didn't mean he didn't care about the poor. And Mary, this family ministered in their community in a marvelous kind of way. It didn't mean that she didn't care about the poor. It meant that if you get your priorities in stra straight, and if you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and you lavish upon him all you have, the other things are going to fall into place. You are going to care about the people around you. You are going to care about a community that's in people in your community who are in need. Those priorities will get worked out if you put first things first. But the people who holler the loudest when you're doing something ex maybe a little extravagant, the people who holler the loudest are not the people concerned about poor people. <laughs> it's not a bit different from the way it's, it's spelled out here. These are not the ones who care about ministering in a physical way to the poor. They're the ones who act that they don't understand anybody's love and adoration for Christ that, that would cause them to give completely of themselves. All right, so humility and anointing his feet and love's unselfconsciousness and doing something like letting her hair down and wiping his feet. She, she wasn't thinking about what somebody was going to say around her. At that minute, she wasn't thinking about the fact that when you let your hair down, people around there would say you were a loose woman. She just sort of forgot about everything except taking whatever she had and wiping his feet. And the hair was the thing that she had at her disposal right then. So love loses its self-consciousness and love's sense of time. And there's a time for doing and saying things. And we brought this out once before. When the time is past, that's the end of it. You know, he, that's what he was saying here. He was going to be gone in just a short few days. That would be the last time you would be able to express to him in a tangible way physically some act like this. And so he, he's saying to us, there's a time when you do things while a person is alive, while the time is right, because that time may never come again. And this was brought out in Timothy, but I found something in, I'm not going to tell you my story about my grandmother again, but I did find this in her things. And, and it makes me realize that this was something that was very important to her. She said, this poem says, give me the flowers now. You know, a lot of times we ignore people in our own family, we ignore people around us, and then one day it's too late, and they're gone, and we wish we're like uh, Thomas Carlyle, who, who really loved his wife all those years. But he was the meanest, orneriest, nitpickingest man who ever lived, and he never gave her anything but trouble. And all through their marriage, he was honor, honor, honor. And when she died, he was looking through her papers in her diary, and he had never been aware of the fact of how crushed she was over all this, see. And when it hit him, and his heart was broken over the fact that he had just really killed her, in a sense, he began to cry out, I mean cry out, if I could just have five minutes, just five minutes, five minutes, to tell her I loved her all through those years. She never knew it. She never knew it. Well, 
that's sort of far-fetched because most of us don't go a lifetime or, or a marriage without telling somebody we love them. But there are people who don't express their love, either in words or in a tangible way. And all of us should remember that, that life is very short. And if you're going to do it, do it now. And this is what this says. It says, should friends desire to give me flowers, please give them to me now. Don't wait for rustling angels' wings or death's dew on my brow. For when you stand beside my clay love tokens in your hand, I cannot catch their fragrance nor your motives understand. Don't wait to stand beside my beard to whisper your regret. But tell me that you love me now. Such words I'll never forget. And I'll remember to the end the fragrance of the flowers brought to me in the warmth of life in happy golden hours. When these my eyes, mine eyes are glazed in death beneath their lids of clay, I shall not need your friendly hand to cheer me on the way. So then don't wait beside my beard to say the things unsaid. I cannot hear your kindly words, nor thank you when I'm dead. But if you wait, you must till I'm dead to speak your words of praise and bring your flowers and fragrance rare to wither on my grave. Then bring them on and pile them high in loving tributes leaven. Perhaps it may be God's good plan to transfer them to heaven. You see, that's impossible. You can't transfer them to heaven. But what this is saying is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying whatever you need to do, do it today. Do it now. Whatever expression you need to, to make, whatever tangible thing you need to do. And don't ever be hung up with the fact that I can't say I love you. I will never get over having met two people. It was at a summer camp. Two people, a mother and a daughter, who could not say I love you to each other. And that was the first time I've ever... I've known people who couldn't express love very well. But I've never known two people who were so stubborn and so hard-headed that they refused to say I love you to a member of your family. And I worked all that week. You wouldn't believe it. I think everything else went by the wayside. And I made it a project. I, if, if I didn't do another thing or accomplish another thing that week, it was going to be accomplished in being able to bring this mother and a daughter to a place where they could just express their love for each other. And it took the whole... I finally got them together. And I said to the daughter, because, you know, it's usually easier to get to the kids. Than, by that time, they're... Oh. But anyway, I said, Aren't you say it first. Say, I love you, mother. And she said, I love you, Mother. And do you know what the Mother said? Me too. <laughs> I did not believe it. I didn't believe it. I couldn't. I was just in a state of shock over the whole thing, you know. When we finally got to that point, and she still couldn't say the words. Don't let it ever get to that place. It's a lot easier than you think. I know it's easy, and some of us are so mushy-gushy. I wonder sometimes if... I must tell my husband a dozen times... Before we go to bed, you know, a dozen times, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I know sometimes he wish, wishes that I would just shut up. <laughs> you know, there's a limit to how many times I want to express it so much. And I know that's easy for me. But it's not that easy for other people. I've realized that, but it's not impossible for anybody. Every single one of us can open our mouths and get those words out. Or do it today. Do it today. Do it before it's too late. All right, and, and then, let me, let me say one more thing. You know, I think a lot of times when, when you hear something like this, and maybe you've made mistakes like this, and maybe it is too late because I've shared with you the thing about my grandmother. To be hung up over mistakes, to be hung up over mistakes is just as bad as anything else. And so what's past is past. That's dead. Buried. Leave it there. We learn. What we learn today is what we're responsible for. And so what you learn today and what you do with what you learn today is what God's interested in, not in getting hung up with guilt over the past. 
that can't be undone. We can never do anything about what, what's gone under the bridge. You know, that's gone. And I, I know there's a tendency sometimes to think, oh boy, I've made so many mistakes, you know. I didn't, why didn't I do all of these things? And that can bog you down and keep you from having victory in your life. Don't worry about yesterday, worry about today. Be concerned about today and tomorrow. All right, a great number of the Jews heard that he was there and came not only to see Jesus, but also Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The chief priest then resolved to do away with Lazarus as well, since on his account, uh, many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in it. There's always been, this has always been true of people. If anybody's a threat to you, and remember the Sadducees were the chief priest, and so the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so when somebody came along and been resurrected from the, day, the dead, he was a threat to all that they had believed all their life. And instead of changing, instead of changing and doing something about Jesus who could change their lives, he was going to upset. Remember the Sadducees were the ones who loved their authority and loved their position and loved their affluence and, and were the collaborationists with the Roman government. If it meant they could still have their little place of prominence there, they would collaborate even with the Romans. And so when Lazarus was raised from the dead and their teaching was there is no resurrection of the dead, then that, you know, that was going to throw everything they had taught people for years into the garbage can which is exactly where it belonged, because there was a resurrection of the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. All right, so now, if somebody threatens you, what do you do? You get rid of them, don't you? If, <laughs> if anything threatens you, and you're going to, you just get rid of them. If, if tapes are your downfall, you just destroy them, right? Well, it's true. That just gives you an idea of what's happening here. Lazarus was a threat to the Sadducees. And so they said, we're going to kill Jesus. He's got to die, die for a whole nation. There, They didn't know what they were saying. Now, Lazarus is a threat too, so we're going to have to kill him. But the strange thing, and maybe that's the reason we never hear anything else from Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It could be the reason that nothing is mentioned in the other gospel accounts about these three people, that their lives were in such danger at that time that John's gospel was written years later after they had surely died, see? And he could mention all these things about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Could be the other gospel writers writing at a time where they were still alive couldn't even mention much about them for fear of their lives because they were in danger of being killed. But you know, the blood of martyrs has been exactly the thing that's encouraged to just live, to go through the ages just, you know, abounding there have always been people, and Lazarus would have been the first one willing to die for the cause of Christ, what he had done for him and that family. They would have gladly died, I'm sure, but this was not what was necessary. The death of Jesus, the death of one man, was necessary for the sin of the world. All right, so now this is a good place to stop.